The Rugby Inheritance Podcast is brought to you in association with George Davies Turf, giving you the greenest grass for every lawn, pitch or playing field you have. Find out more at www.georgedaviesturf.co.uk. Hello and welcome to a special episode of the Rugby Inheritance Podcast. In this series we brought to you last year, Ed Slater and I spoke to a large amount of incredible rugby players about their wonderful careers, and it struck us that there could be an episode of bringing a few of these voices together on a particular theme. So this is an England special around the idea of what it takes to play professional rugby. In this episode, we will hear from England internationals, all talking about what they feel made them into the player they became. Each one of these players articulates what drove them in the formative stage of their careers and what they feel separated them from others, making them exceptional rugby players. This could prove invaluable listening for anyone starting out on their own rugby journey. So let's dive right in. Back in May, we talked to Chris Ashton, England's record try scorer, and an insightful voice to hear from as regards applying yourself. Listen to what he has to say about his attitude entering England camps, and then towards the end, he gives incredible advice around fast money and how social media can alter the truth of potential situations. This is Rugby Inheritance. There was there's a there's a guy that got me from He's the current England rugby league coach, Sean Wayne. His name is. Oh wow! And he was he was our academy our development coach at the time, and he was the guy really that that took a shine into me. And that would have been around fifteen ish. And and before that, I didn't really get picked for much. I was always oh, I always felt there's always the extra one. I was always the one who was on the bench or just didn't make the team of. You know, your your national or your your Lancashire teams, your county teams, whatever. I never really got picked. I was always the one that got left out generally. I was close, but never close enough. And it was until Sean really took a, took a shine into me and thought he could see, could see something in me that I think from that moment, I was like, if one person aside from your family is taking a, taking a shine to you, then that's all I really needed was something to show you confidence and go, you, you can give this a go. And then, yeah, I just went through the levels, flying all, and he was with me the whole way through. Did any of that rejection, if you like, one mm. of a better word, did that stick with you? Were you, yeah, were you conscious of it? <laughs> were you hurting when you weren't making rep teams? Were you wondering why? Or Yeah, you always wonder why. I always felt like a bit of the outcast, if you like. There was always, <laughs> there was always a, a reason for things, but... And probably I wasn't, maybe I wasn't ready. Maybe I wasn't at the situation where I could have gone and done anywhere and done well, but I definitely benefited from it. Because then I would just go away and go, okay, I'll do it on my own. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll fix it up. And I've still done that today. You know, I still train on my own. I still do things on my own because I don't know. Maybe I feel like I am doing it for myself and not someone else and not in front of somebody that if I do it, I do it on my own. Then I know, I know really where I'm at from it. Yeah. And I, I used to go into camps or whatever, summer camps or World Cup camps, and I would p- make on purpose arrive the, the fittest or the strongest back in the group just because I'm like, what's the point in us going to the camp to get fitter? I need to start at the front and then end at the front. So you had to find an edge somewhere. And that was definitely born out of that rejection at the start. 
I actually, I actually remember you the 2015 World Cup camp and did a, a big day indoor. We had to do the bleep test and then go outside. Yeah. Yeah, like I remember that, yeah. fitness. Uh, and I remember you absolutely smashed it out of the park. Too, too tired to go and try and though then, mate. We had to go out straight <laughs> out, didn't we? I'm going, and I was thinking about it. I can remember it. I was thinking about it going, what do I do here? Do I go for this? Because we've got to train after and do fitness. But uh, you just got to get yourself, because you will go through it, you will get through it. You're just trying to, yeah. because it's so easy, isn't it, to get give up on those things or just go, oh, that's enough. But I was like, that's my point of difference. I have to do it for myself or whatever, uh, just to prove that I, I need to be there. And that enabled me to just get around the pitch better and always be able to do that better, because I know I knew I had the fitness behind me. But yeah, <laughs> that one wasn't a good idea. I'd go and do fitness <laughs> after. What was the young you like as a rugby player? And indeed, as an add-on question, would you have any pieces of advice for that young player? Mm. I'd definitely say I made a conscious decision. Um, I say no conscious. It probably wasn't that conscious. But I I decided, I I started to surround myself with different people. And I think that's so important for kids today because you can get so distracted with stuff. And all of a sudden you get caught in the wrong circle or the wrong group, which you're just completely unaware of. And the next thing you're six, 12 months down the line, you're like, oh no, chance is gone. So I, I surrounded myself with the rugby lads more than my other friends, uh, which probably didn't go down well, but they were just doing things that I, I just, there was no benefit for me there at all. Yeah, um, I had to surround myself with the right people who had the right drive and the right focus, and and that was generally the people that were involved with the the rugby side of it because we all had the same drive, and we weren't allowed to go and be distracted or go off and do other bits. So I, I think you have to you have to be more aware of who you're being with and you, and, and put yourself in in like minded people situation. That's incredible foresight, Chris. You know, as a young person, how, how where does that come from? How did you manage to have that ability to see that that opportunity, or, or should I say, see the the issue with potentially not taking the opportunity? Where does that come from? I think it's drive. It probably drive to want to make it work. Once you've made, I mean, I mean, it's, it's easy looking back. It's always easier looking back now, going, "Oh yeah, this was that." You don't actually know because in the moment you've made the decision and it ends up being the correct one. Thankfully, but. I would definitely needed to separate myself just from certain people because they were just going down different lines of, of life. And I was like, that's not what I'm planning on doing here. I was desperate to play rugby. I want to play rugby. And I, I was convinced. I was I convinced myself that I wanted to be one of the best no matter what it was. And so you have to find the path that, that's going to lead you that way. And if you're not that interested at school, then... It, I think it makes you even more conscious to go and drive and get it. And once you get a small taste of it and you're like, oh, I'm literally like, I'm quite close to it here. I just kept pushing you on and pushing you on. And it's like anything, really. If you surround yourself with some better people, you'll catch them up and then same again, same again. You just have to keep working it that way. And once I got a taste, I was, I was down to make it work and I was close to a dream. So you just, you just want to pursue it. What what age would you have been at then, Ashley, when you feel like you separated yourself and moved in a different direction? 15, 16. 
you have a group of mates that go off in one direction, don't you? Another that, you know, yeah. I had friends that wanted to leave school, get into work. I had a group that wants to stay in, then wants to go to university. You spend, you know, that's the time when you're going down the park, isn't it, really, and having a having yeah, a load yeah. of drink down there and doing all-nighters. And I think, you know, I, I definitely remember being that age and it kind of dawning on me and going like, it's a bit shit, really, isn't it? Like, <laughs> I think, I think it's, I think it's fun because they're going out drinking, and you'd be there and you go, "Nah, this is a bit shit. I can't be asked to keep doing this." You know, weekend after weekend. I don't know if it's the same for you. Actually, it might be a different scenario, but I definitely remember thinking that about fifteen, sixteen, going, "Not really for me." That yeah, you do it. You did it. Do it a bit. Don't get me wrong, but then there comes a point where you're like, "No, I can't do this." every week it's not not gonna get us anywhere if we're doing that and then you're playing rugby alongside of it and you're getting a bit of success at that so you're like oh I'm gonna put a bit more time in that probably it's exactly the same now it's even worse now for kids because the social media side of it or whatever there's all this fast money in front of them and before I mean when we you we were younger it was the fast money was oh such and such a body who's got a new car how's he got the car it's like you had to dig that way and it was never a good path. But now you see all this social media fast money. It's like, oh, I can just do this and get that. I'm like, no, it generally doesn't work in anything, does it? That <laughs> You have to work out no matter what it, what it is going to be. Uh, nothing's ever fast. Golden words from the Premiership's top try scorer. Worth bearing in mind whatever stage you're at in life. Let's hear now from Tom Wood, Ashton's one-time Northampton Saints and England colleague. We spoke to him back in April, and his revelations about rugby hunger and desire was unrivaled. Pay attention to him describing rejection and being turned down at junior England level, and how he responded to that adversity. Listen also to the way he describes it as free fuel. To start us off, Ed asks Woody about what his entry point to representational rugby was like. Did you have a good team around you? Or were you a standout, you know, were you the only one kind of making rep sides or were there several of you that were coming through? I always felt like I was one of many. I never felt like I was, you know, head and shoulders above everybody else or standout sort of destined for glory or anything like that. It was a case of I loved the game. I felt like others around me were more talented, actually, better players and could have gone on. I actually uh, had a few mates that came to Worcester Academy with me because I put in a word for them, really. And I was like, lads, like, there's an opportunity here. I think you guys are great players. If you come and put your best foot forward, there's a good chance that professional rugby could be for you as well. Uh, I, think, I think we're all good enough to do it. And I guess it just comes down to what you want in life. I couldn't understand that perhaps those guys didn't want it the way I did. So that, I'd be like late teens by that point, sort of 16, 17. But throughout my whole mini and junior, we had a really good team. Uh, we we tended to win more than we lost. We won at festivals and things like that. And then um, we a lot of us played for Coventry schools, Warwickshire schools. And then I was probably the only one that was really hungry and, and represented the Midlands and eventually England under 18s. I was the only one that went that far. And I think that just came, it wasn't down to talent, definitely not down to talent. It was just down to the fact that I, I was really hungry and, and really wanted to see how far I could go in the game. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because I coached a little bit in the academy at Gloucester. And, you know, a bit like you, when I was younger, I probably couldn't understand people that operated in in different way. You know, I thought, hold on, we're here. we got an opportunity. Let's go for it, you know. And what you realise is there's probably quite a lot of pressure associated with it, isn't there? In terms of yeah. being in the academy or trying to make rep sides or self-doubt 
all those things and, and not many people can overcome them at, at a young age it takes it takes time doesn't it but if you have a that little bit of a different mentality which I'm sure you had, or no doubt you had. Well, you probably didn't worry about outside pressure. You were just thinking, oh, you know, I want, I want this. I want to go for it, uh, and had it framed differently. It's weird now, me reflecting back and trying to understand other people's point of view. Because at the time, it like I, I didn't have any of those troubles in terms of self doubt or questioning whether I like I whether I belong there or anything. I, I was just hungry, and I probably had a chip on my shoulder for no for no good reason. You know, there was a part of me that's like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna prove people wrong. I'm gonna really push myself and see how far I can go. I remember not getting selected. Well, a kind of defining moment in my career was prior to being a professional or anything like that. Around 17 years old, I trialed for England under 18s a year early, and I got the tape back and I kind of objectively watched it back. And I thought, you know, I've got to be selected. Like, trying not to be biased, trying to look at it through, a, you know, a neutral's eyes. I've played really well, objectively. So, if you're picking the team based on that trial, I've got to be picked. But they went ahead and they picked a load of guys that were associated with academies already or that were at Millfield School or whatever the big schools were at the time. And I was comprehensive school and no, not associated with an academy at that time. So I had Tom Woodbark at Woodland School next to my name, which perhaps didn't, you know, yeah. politically didn't put me in the right category. And there was, a, there was a guy in a similar position to me that played fullback. I reckon he scored four tries at the trial. He was hands down. He was a way better player than me. He was, he was electric. And he didn't get picked either. He, I remember him saying to me, like, I was like, what are you going to do now? Like, um, and he basically retired, quit, quit rugby on the spot and said, if I could play that well and not get selected, this isn't worth my time. And I had completely the opposite approach. I was like, I'm going to show all of these guys. <laughs> yeah. I, was yeah, like, yeah. I, I was like, you wait till these guys see me this time next year. I'm going to be like tearing everyone to pieces. And I was the sort of person that was putting people's faces on the dartboard or up in the gym thinking, you know, uh, I know who's not training as hard as I am, you know, when I'm in the gym or I'm out training and setting up. And um, I guess that was that was something that just kind of drove me. It was like free fuel yeah. to me. But rather than it putting me down or making me question myself, it was like free fuel and energy. I was like, that's what I'm training for now. That, that's yeah. my whole purpose. I, I fed off a similar thing. I, no rhyme or reason because I, I wasn't a rep, you know, an age-grade rugby player or anything like that, mainly because I started very late. But I kind of created situations that people had already written me off, you know. So yeah. it, it was kind of—it's like a, a form of self-harm in a way, yeah. <laughs> because uh, you know. But is that when you talk to yourself? But if yeah. you're talking to yourself that way, and that's giving you energy and fuel, if it's putting you down and depressing you or stressing you out, it's obviously a negative thing. But if it's driving you, if it's giving you yeah. energy, then it's well. It was only ever really rugby where I'd do it. You know, you kind of go, oh, yeah. "I bet they think you're shit." You know, are you sure? Are you? No, no, you know, oh, I bet they think yeah. you're fucking weak as well. Are you? You know, it's that kind yeah. of thing. But Oh, mate, that resonates with me a lot. I can really put myself in that position as well. I, I just want to just dive in and just ask a question, and perhaps it's a whole podcast on its own, but you, you, you alert me there to, to an issue that rugby potentially has, Woody, as regards potentially thinking that rugby players need to come from certain spaces or certain schools or certain development areas. And and it's wrong. I'm, I'm rather hoping that in the years that have passed between it happening to you and this other chap that it, that it, that it happened to, rugby hopefully has potentially sorted itself out. Has it? 
I think in some ways it's probably made huge gains. I think the rugby cast the net a lot wider these days with academy systems and connections to local schools and things like that. Like I can only speak from the Saints' point of view, but I know they've got um, they've got quite a, like a, a wide net with this DPP program where they um, you know they get kids from sort of 14, 15 years onwards and they have a good look at everybody and they, they you know they have training sessions and elite elite sort of pathways for them. The one area I'd say that probably losing losing in that battle is state schools so there's a lot of schools that don't have rugby now um it costs money you need facilities you need qualified coaches you need first aiders it's, it's difficult to put on rugby the Dulwiches, the harrow the millfield the zebras of this world are always going to have rugby you know they're they're going to be um funded and it's going to be part of their curriculum I know locally around here in Northampton, a school called Campion, just up the road in, in Bugbrook, next to where my kids play their club rugby. They've got a proud history of rugby, but at the minute they can't get directors of rugby or coaches and can't get a team up and running. And there's some great players in that school that, you know, are not getting school rugby at the minute. They're relying on the clubs to provide it, um, which may mean that they go and notice for too long or they admit, or they lose the buzz for it or they don't get the opportunities that others do. So... You know, I'd definitely say that's something that is a, is a huge shame and, and difficult to reverse in the modern world because mums are worried about contact and all the, all the press, the negative press around collisions and head knocks and stuff these days and injuries. I don't know how many people are pushing for it, but I think it's a massive shame. Staying with rejection, we return to two of our earliest interviews. First up, the incomparable Freddie Burns, a man who has endured a fair share of opinion on the way he played. Listen to the way he talks about the disappointment he has endured, the way that certain coaches didn't pick him, and the way he worked out a way around this problem. That whole episode is a fantastic listen and a really good example of finding strength in adversity. And it wasn't until 16 I got invited into the Bath Academy to like do some training and that, and I, and I did that. And then when I turned 17, they were like, oh, I was in no England setups and all that. They were like, oh, go and do um, a three-day England under-18s trial at Loughborough Uni. And I was like, oh, I'll just go and see how I compare. And throughout the week, I was all right, but I was just like not that great. And then it come to the game and I just managed to switch it on. And then next time I'm in the England squad. But even then it was like, you know, I would, I'd be on the bench and stuff. And then I was told that I was too small to play fly-off and I need to eat six meals a day. and all this sort of crap so it was never a case of like nailed on oh you're, you're gonna go on and have the career it was a lot of um it was a lot of little setbacks which at that age not you for six as that 16 year old freddie what what words of advice would you would you have for that that 16 year old if you could go back in time and just whisper in freddie burns's ear at 16 what what would you say i actually do you know what? i actually wouldn't say anything because I handled that situation the best I could. And I look back now and I'm like, I had traits back then that I didn't realise would come to fruition later on in my career, which was persistence, like just constantly having a crack and just putting your best foot forward. And that's all I did. Like, of course, I was disappointed. I find it funny now. I'm not going to say the bloke's name in case he listens to it because he's not a bad bloke. But the bloke at <laughs> Somerset didn't pick me for Southwest. He told me that I'd never be a professional fly half. And then Five years later, I started for it. Oh, I played for England against the All Blacks at, at Flyer. Every time I go down the local pub now, all I hear is him saying about how he taught me all he fucking knows to play. Do you know what I mean? So, <laughs> oh, I really want to. Oh, one, day, one day, when I'm in a bad mood, I'm going to go, here, you know fuck all, mate. <laughs> um, but no, but generally, I just think that, like, 
I think it was installed like for my like my mum and dad have always been sort of um, like they've run a family business. You know, they've gone through recessions and the business has kept going. They've gone through hard times, and I don't know whether it was their kind of lead, but I just I don't know. I just never really lost lost heart. I always just kept trucking, and it will end up coming good in the end. So yeah, it's um, like almost. I'll be honest with you. I just want to say like fuck them. It's amazing, and even now in my career, Eddie Jones comes in as England coach, obviously a few years back now. It's one man's opinion whether you're in it or not. People say, oh, still think, yeah, 100%. I still reckon I could play for England now. Whether, you know, people might listen to that and laugh. Your career is often defined by one man's opinion. And, you know, when I look at careers that I've had in places I've played, it's sometimes, you know, Bath, Stuart Hooper clearly didn't rate me. Do you know what I mean? And, it, and it therefore didn't pick me to start and play. So that's not, that's not anything to do with, with me necessarily. That's just their opinion. And sometimes you're better off going somewhere uh, where you're valued. And we've all been in those environments, Swede, as well, we? were like, you know, you know, you're not valued. And then the difference between that and going to a place where you know they see value in you. Like even last year at Leicester, obviously, I, didn't, I wasn't starting. Fordy was the main man. The way Steve spoke to me, the way Kev Sinfield spoke to me, I felt like they saw value in me. And that was all, that's all you need as a person sometimes in sport and out of sport is to feel that. You know, even in relationships and friendships and stuff like that, the, the feeling of just feeling valued. You haven't got to be the best or whatever, but the feeling of feeling valued is very underrated. Next up is Alex Good, another player who perhaps has not played as much England internationals as he deserved. In this extract, he talks openly about coming to terms with not being selected and how he turned that to his advantage. Have a listen also to the way that a player like Alex Good was rejected by a club like Leicester Tigers. We start with Ed asking him how he felt after being named the 2019 European Player of the Year. To get European Player of the Year, you know, in some ways is a, a bit of a middle finger. I'm not saying that you looked at it like that. But certainly, you know, someone like me on the outside of it looked at it and went, well... You know, no, we're not just making it up. The bloke's a fucking good player. I think at the time I looked at it and, and, I, and I had sort of a bit of solace going, you can only really say, have I done everything possible? I, 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 in my own mind, I'd done everything possible. And I could look myself in the mirror and go, you've done well here. There's really not much more you can do. Be proud of that. And, you know, what, it, you know everything else will take care of itself. And it didn't in this case. But... I was at peace with it more because I'd gone, you know, you've, you've played well, you've trained unbelievably hard, you've given everything and it's not quite enough or it's not quite right, whatever it is. And, and I was okay with it. I think there's always an element of what you said of like the middle finger, because I, I think it's the most motivating factor for me in rugby is that I remember when I wasn't picked under 16s for England, I remember when I was, second choice or third choice at under 18s. I remember when I wasn't first choice at under 19s. I'll never forget those moments or when I wasn't picked up. They, they have been the biggest motivating factors for me for being rejected and not going, I'm going to give them the middle finger so much, but I'm going to prove them wrong. And having a chip on my shoulder, like I wasn't the number one, you know, like Sips was ahead of me at this level and that. And it was always him and I'm going... I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to prove everyone wrong that I'm this good. And it's sort of driven me to go, I'm going to go out and do more kicking. I'm going to go out and do more passing, more high balls and get better and better. And I think that's actually quite important for a lot of young players. I, I try and pass that on is remember that rejection or that feeling of not being everything going your way. 
because it's how you respond to that. It's a very cheesy thing. It's how you respond to the setbacks that really defines you. But for me, it is being my single biggest probably motivating factor. And and I'm glad I've had those because that's made me the person I am today. I was going to ask you about, I was made aware when I was at Leicester that you could have potentially gone down the Leicester pathway. Is that right? Yeah, no, yeah, firmly. Um, 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 I, I guess I want to touch on that a little bit because, you know, I, me- I remember us all talking about it at the time going like, what a cock up. And there, there's a few of those, those stories, but obviously it worked out great for you. I was at Oakham School for my sixth form uh, and great school. I had uh, Ian Smith, Dossa, as coach. He was uh, a little shout out to him. He's just an incredible human. Um, yeah. He'll message me before any final big games. Just the best like coach you could ever have at school. Firm, like hard, but just amazing at motivating young men, young men and bringing the best out of me to be born professional and understand what it took to be a, a rugby player, really. Just get, and, but the empathy he had for young people was, was incredible. Um, but yeah, I was at Oakham and they'd had before me Crofty, Matt Smith, the Wheeler brothers, Tom Gregory, Mudos, a lot of players come through and it was like a production line for Tigers. And I wasn't attached to any club. And I was in my lower sixth year, so I was like 16, going on 17. Dusty here came in. He was the head scout for the academy and like academy manager, I think it was, or whatever. And he came, we had lunch at the top table at Oakham and sort of all the kids are sort of watching. And I'm very nervous. It's me, Dossa and, and Dusty and sat there. And I had this, he sort of talked about Leicester Academy and that. And there was this overriding feeling, which is quite amazing, really. At that young age, I could sense it in a way. He really didn't like me as a player that much. And he, he just sort of criticised my game throughout and didn't really say anything positive. But it had this overriding feeling of he was doing it as a favour to Dossa, who was a, a Tigers legend, and because of the other kids who had come through. And there was another guy the year after me, he was about to be signed up to the school who was in the Leicester Academy already and playing a similar position. He didn't really care for me or think my game was that great, but he was doing it as a favour to school and we better just take him along anyways. And I had that feeling and it was probably doubled down when he went, I was like, oh, but, you know, he talked about coming for pre-season at Leicester in the academy. I was like, well, I live in like south of Cambridge. Like it's, two hours every day I can't be doing that every day for academy stuff and he went well haven't you got a, a rich friend who, who lives nearby you can stay with and I sort of that offhand comment and I'm not trying to have a go at him at the time he probably just thought I was another kid who wasn't that good just hit me and it was like he wasn't that bothered he didn't want to help and I ended up going to Bath Academy for the summer because they were like well come down here We'll get you some train expenses. There's a little house you can stay in. Blah, blah. And it's just a bit more welcoming and, and want, wanted. And, and I never forget it, really. And then even the year after, when I played a bit better and done sort of England under 18 stuff, didn't come knocking Leicester at all. And there were a couple of other clubs did. And I, and I chose Saracens. But Leicester never came here knocking. And, and I just had that feeling of it was more of a, a favour than actually wanting me. And, you know what, like maybe they were right, you know, that 
at the time. I don't know, uh, but I wouldn't change obviously what what's happened for me because of it. And and I have huge respect for Leicester. I, lo- I, I I've got so much time for Leicester. I love it as a club. I've always very close to the Leicester boys when I was in camp and yourself and that group of guys who came through, especially that so, so, such a successful period and after a, a great humans first and foremost and, and great players. So um, nothing bad to say about Leicester. It's just that was how it worked out for me and you travel a different path. Staying in the East Midlands, back in May, we spoke at length to Billy Twelvetrees about his beginnings at Leicester Tigers, and while he wasn't regaling us with the myriad of practical jokes he used to play on his teammates, he revealed how his insecurities actually hampered his development. Pay attention to what he says towards the end of this section about being a sponge and learning off everyone around you. Invaluable advice for anyone trying to develop. The bit that I wish I told myself was when I was probably about 19, 20, like you're actually, you can be quite good, but I was felt like I was going to be found out. Like, um, I was like, I should be a, should, and the biggest one of that was I somehow joined the Leicester Tigers Academy at the age of 18. So all the other lads would have been there from the EPDG stuff and thought, you know, like 15, 16 up. And I kind of got dropped in there as an 18 year old. Like, where's this guy come from? Look at this long blonde haired weirdo. He's not from Leicester. Like, how's he gone to this setup? So therefore, that kind of just reinforced my like um, naivety and like probably, you know, I was a bit insecure about it. Like, oh, I should be here. <laughs> I'm going to find out. And it was like an oval park at Leicester Pikes then. Like you came in the mornings and the afternoons, you cross over the first team. That's Lewis Moody. That's Jordan Murphy. That's Ben Kay. That's Martin Corey. Like, I was just like, Jesus Christ. Like, I um, shouldn't be here. <laughs> so therefore, when I got in with it a little bit, I was just like, do not speak. Do not do anything. Just be happy to be here. And then if you get a year out of it, great. <laughs> it's like I missed a lot of time by being probably a little bit nice, a little bit humble, and a little bit like insecure. Just like, no, 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 happy to be here. <laughs> and it only took a few like people talking to you. Then that's what I mean. Like going back, I would have been like, because of my upbringing, because I was, I didn't have a rugby brain in terms of you see these lads coming through now or the great players who've been driven from an early age of rugby, rugby, rugby. I was never that. It was like, I loved it, but didn't really know it. And I therefore had maybe a talent for it and I just worked at it. So I would love to go back to that 19-year-old Billy and be like, you could be good if you just get, um, you'd be a bit of a sponge, listen to people, stop being so nice and just, you know, be a bit ruthless. Did you stand off? Did you, do you think I, you... Uh, I was still in the, like in the moment, like training and like I was inertly like stubborn and driven and very competitive. But like I was probably too respectful of, oh, he's he's been in the academy for years. He's, oh, he's, yeah, he's been, he plays, he trains with the first team. Yeah, I can't ruffle their feathers. Oh, he can have the reps. He can do it. I'll just, yeah, mate, if I get on the bench for an academy game, that's great. I can, you know, I've got all oh, my Leicester Tigers academy show. It's cool. And then I'd, I was going on loan to Leicester, not on loan. I was at Leicester Lions, which were in National 2 North at the time. I was like, that's my place. And then it took a few coaches to be like, mate, do you have any aspirations to, you know, play in the Prem? I was like, no, I didn't have to be. <laughs> I know my dad was never a rugby player, never knew rugby, so therefore, neither did my mum. So I was the only one in the family who had any sort of, I was the only one watching rugby in that sense. And really, so it was like, I needed someone to go like, oh, this is what rugby is. This is how you do it. This is why we do this. But at the time, I was just like, a bit like I was in those first year at Bedford, Sam. It was like, I was just like playing free spirited. 
like I remember vividly Doncaster away, my first start at 10, so was, you probably don't remember this, but I do for many reasons. And um, Carl Dixon was nine, I was at 10. I remember it's both were in the second row. And Ed, you would like this, because I was just, we're in our own 22, and we've done about 20 phases in our own 22, like width to width. I'm chucking long balls, like loving it, loving life. And Ritz is like, Billy fucking kicked the ball. And I was just like, oh shit, yeah, that's on me. I'm the 10. <laughs> and like, we end up losing the game like 50 points to 20. I'm just buzzing because I've just played 80 minutes of fly half for a championship tied. And then like, and like, I remember Mikey Rare says, like, um, you ever heard of game management? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> no, mate, I just want to score a shot. And I, was, I think they realised, it's like, wow, this guy's just pretty raw. We've got a similar, I, I, I definitely said, you know, I had imposter syndrome. Without a doubt at Leicester. Yeah, that's it. That's the word. Yeah, yeah it's true. Um, yeah. So you were quite respectful. I think I was more worried that people were thinking that. So I went over the top the other way <laughs> to try yes. and hide yes. the fact that I was actually worried that I shouldn't be there. But, which um, actually was the Leicester way, which suited, like, which cockers love. Like, yeah, yeah, which probably him, worked. Look at him favorite. throwing some punches over there. That's fucking good, that. <laughs> oh, Billy, you yeah, should yeah. be doing that. Yeah, yeah. He's actually shitting himself. But, yeah. um, but one thing definitely that you've got that I think sometimes you wish younger guys could learn quickly is that ability to pick up information and learn from it very quickly. From from your rugby journey to Leicester Academy, you know, Leicester Lions, Bedford, you picked up information very quickly and then turned it out on the field, which is a, a huge skill, I think. Playing that year at Bedford... Coming back to Leicester with a set of new coaches, leapfrogging some of my mates who were in the academy and going straight to the first team. And like thinking, well, they signed me, so I'm obviously good enough. But then looking at the players in my position, Toby Flood, Aaron Major, Anthony Allen, Dan Hipkiss, Matt Smith, Manny Tuolangi, Sam Bestie, oh, and Billy Chalchies. <laughs> it sounds like, ah, how am I going to play? So I just became like, was it to be here? I'm just going to be loving life. I remember like just watching Sam Vesti and Hip Kiss and like they know everything about D and Attack and Aaron Major. And he was just like, Major's great for me. I played a few games and he didn't know, you know, Major he was quite a quiet player. But I was just like, he was so skillful and knew everything. And he'd be like, oh, mate, you could, mate, you already played with Vesti, mate. You're going like, to play for England one day. And I was like, okay Aaron <laughs> and it was like right if I just learn off half these lads then great and the best thing and then that was like pre-season I remember I remember actually remember going to Saint-Afrique in France and you've been there Ed, and um God. so I just turned up and I looked the way I looked remember I turned up and um we were in the, in the food hall then lunchtime there was nothing anyone looked forward to after getting beaten up in the morning was it it was like terrible rotten food or yeah, undercooked <laughs> chicken so it's like, and I remember like like you said, well, I was with Fozzie, and I think, I don't know who it was, I don't think Fozzie was too young at the time. And Fozzie just nabbed the seat with all the young lads, and then the only seat left, <laughs> the only seat left was it? So Benny Kay, Moodos, Julian White, and oh, like, oh, mate, you can sit there, the lads were there, and they're like, <laughs> and like, you know, the Leicester environment back then, it was like very much seen, not heard, preferably not seen at all. And I was like, <laughs> I can't sit there. And I remember just like, can I do it here, please? And Mikey, you know what? Such a nice guy. He's like, yeah, of course, mate. And Rudolph just gave me the eyebrows and I was like, fuck now, okay, fine, I'll just sit here and just shut up at your food. And for some reason, like, they engaged me and I was like, oh, you joined from the academy? You're in the academy, are you? I was like, 
yeah, yeah, how many academy? Even though I was in the first team, I was like, oh, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying I'm in the first team there. And then, and then Benny Kay said, oh, no, he's in the first team, lads. Have you not seen the, the blue boots he's wearing? And then, you know, back then, it's like, if you don't wear black boots, you're a big dog. So look at the boots he's wearing. And I was wearing like his blue boots because one of the boys knew were black boots. And me just went, big dog, are you? Big dog, we'll see. And then, like, that was the end of the conversation. And I just remember, like, shifting myself. And I was like, oh, my God. And that afternoon, we did, like, CV games, fitness, 15 or 15 stuff. And it's like, oh, yeah, pair up an opposite number. And Cocker's like, oh, Billy, you look like Moodos. Everyone keeps calling you Moodos. You can train with him. He's a knacker. And I was like, and he's like, oh, blue boots. Yeah, good prick. I don't want to go with you. And I was like, oh, my God. And I'm just like, right. <laughs> he's one of the fittest, best players I've ever played in the position. How am I going to keep up with him? And I was just like, right, do not stop running. <laughs> and that was like, looking back, like, what a lesson. Like, how cool. But also, like, what the mentality was a lesson. I was like, I'm just going to shut up and listen and be a sponge and at some point I'll have the confidence to go okay yeah I got this in September we had a fantastic discussion with Mark Wilson the Newcastle and England pack rower whose pragmatism and toughness made him a standout athlete amongst his peers in this section Mark hands out crucial advice around how you should see yourself and the dangers of comparing yourself to other people He also talks brilliantly about how playing rugby matches at championship and national league level is vital to professional player development. One thing that Fletcher used to say was always about attitude. So he said that um, he used to break the game down into like percentages, but he said that 60% of it is attitude. And that's always, I always hung on to that. That was one thing I always like tried to carry on throughout my career. And the other one really that I kind of keep driving is uh, Ian Peel used to always say about pointy strengths. I mean, don't try and do something that you're, you're not good at or don't, you know, you, you get in the team because you're good at this. You know, don't try and be, you know, I knew that I was never going to be the best ball carrier in the world, you know, especially when you're, you know, playing alongside Billy and Paula. Like, you know, I mean, I'm never going to be as good a ball carrier as him, but I can be the best version of me. And, 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 and that's kind of one thing I always like, hold, held on to. If you could speak to that, that young Mark Wilson, what, what would you say to him? What, what, what things would you tell him to be aware of or be aware of i think the biggest thing was like 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 first of all setbacks you're going to get like a shit ton of setbacks there's going to be times where you're not selected there's going to be times where you're fucking hating it but if you really want it then you'll, you'll get by them and you'll find a way um but the biggest thing probably that i'd tell like young lads or i tell myself is that like never compare yourself to anyone because you're on a different you're on a different journey you know what i mean at 17 16, 17, I was pretty shit, like in terms of like, like compared to the rest of the academy. Like, we went on, we had a under 18s tour to Ireland with uh, the Falcons Academy. And there was like 45 lads went, and, and I didn't get on the, I didn't get on the team. Because uh, I was pretty, I wasn't like, you know, I genuinely, I was pretty, pretty average, but I was keen. Do you know what I mean? And then, but then my progression didn't start until I started playing senior rugby. And that's when my progression started to go like really rapidly re- re- rise. Yeah. At the time, I was probably a little bit lucky because I was, like I said, I just carried on being keen. But back then I was worrying the whole time going, fuck, oh, well, you know, this, this guy's playing England under 18. This guy's pretty hell. Like Will Welsh, when he was 18, he played for the first team. And I was like, Jesus Christ, I'm nowhere near that. Um, yeah. That was, that was my constant worry. And, um, you know, I was, co- I was conscious I was getting sidetracked by that and starting to think, oh, I'm shit, I'm not good enough for this. But I, so probably the, the biggest thing I would say is don't, don't compare yourself to anyone else. You, you're competing against yourself at the end of the day. You've got to keep trying to get better as, as what you what you do and not be concerned about 
what Joe Bloggs is doing over there and how many caps he's got or how many uh, times he's been picked for England 18s, 20s, whatever it is. Um, just focus on you. Yeah, that's such a recurring theme, isn't it? That often because of, and you mentioned it, I think you mentioned it in the last podcast that we did with, with, uh, with Sarah Hunter, you talked about the fact that so, so much of rugby's changes from 18, 19, 20, you change as an individual. Almost one of the key things to, to being a player is, is hanging on in there. Does that make sense? It's not, it's not necessarily being as good as you can possibly be and, and being the best throughout the age grades. It's sometimes, as Mark has alluded to there, you just got to hang tough for as long as you possibly can and allow rugby to sort of, or allow yourself to catch up with rugby again and, and then hit your straps at age 21, 22. Is that, is that fair, Ed? It is. Um, but to do that, you need to play. And playing adult rugby was similar to Mark, is where I progressed most quickly. Um, but these days, you know, you're looking at 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, you're making judgments on them. They haven't played many games. Um, and so it's difficult for for people to get a break, um, you know, get an opportunity in the game because they're getting judged so early and with so little rugby. And it's a really kind of difficult place, I think, that rugby has got into at the minute with with that lack of options club-wise to get young guys games and give them time to progress. How, how did that work out for you, Mark? How did you get your rugby? Um, well, I, I, I think, again, just if we like, rewind a little bit, I think this is another thing that like John Fletcher used to drive. And again, this is why guys like him were needed in these academies because he said to, he was open to us when we were kind of in that like middle teens, you know, 15, 16, he said, you might not become professional until your early 20s. You know, it's not like football where, you know, you um, at 18, it's like, it's, that's it. It's You're either it or you're not. Um, and that's something, again, that I kind of held on to, knowing that actually I, I've got to be patient with this. Um, and I totally get what Ed's saying. It's, it's, it is hard for people to get that break. But, you know, it's, it, it, and it's been nice to see of recent years, like, you know, you see like the likes of Alex Dombron and uh, Luke, Luke Northmore. I know they were still pretty young when they when they joined the Quinns, but, you know, that didn't happen initially, did it? And I think that that's what's, what's you know, good stories that, that shows that it still can be done. Like we had a, yeah. we had a lads like Simon Hammersley and mm. Sean Robinson who've gone on to have great careers who, you know, they Chris can, Harris. Yeah, Chris, Chris Harris. Well. Was the yeah. George McGuigan? George McGuigan was another one yeah. who floated around Tyndale seconds for like when he was 18, 19. They were put making him play on the wing, he was making him do all sorts. And, and and these guys had to go through a little bit of hardship, but they were put like they were playing, they were playing rugby, they were playing men's rugby, and then eventually they, they got their break. And, and, and like I said, similar to, similar to myself, I played a year of like junior rugby and played at my home club at Kendall. So I was travelling back from Newcastle to, to Kendall on a weekend. And then, uh, then John Blaine the season after, uh, which again was another season of playing like men's rugby. I mean, I, met, I remember one time I made my Newcastle debut uh, in the LV Cup down at Worcester at 20. So I was 20 year old. The next week I was playing for Blaine Twos. <laughs> 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 and, and did they, 
Did yeah, they I mean, mention that? Did they mention that, Mark, when you took the field? Did they mention yeah. that? <laughs> well, I just remember, I just remember, so Mickey Young, his brother was playing that day for, for the, the opposition, and he was like, what the fuck's going on here? He's playing against Latham and Rico Gear and all these guys. Now he's playing against fucking 40-year-old cops and that, they're just, you know, <laughs> it's just, you believe it, but yeah, I'd take that one on the chin. Yeah, <laughs> but but it's those playing fields that are you know, and and our podcast is is showing it time and again. It's those playing fields, as you mentioned, Tyndale twos. It's it's the the playing fields that that exist there that are are actually providing and giving players that platform in which to then go on and have a professional career. And 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 we're if we're, if we're not careful, and this, I don't want to turn this into party political broadcast on behalf of rugby, but. It seems as though, Mark, that that's the case, isn't it? If we're not careful, if we don't if we don't look after those playing fields, then we we are going to lose a lot of players from the game. Yeah, I, I reckon so. I think that um, writing people off in that age as well is is, is such a dangerous thing as well because you, you don't know how people are going to progress. Because I, I reckon that, like, again, people people like uh, Chris Harris, like he he joined the kind he joined Newcastle at eighteen as a fullback. And it was like ugh, this guy is he's he's not really progressing. But then, like I said, he went away, went to Rotherham for a bit, uh, went to t- played at Tynell for a bit, came back as a centre, and then all of a sudden you go and this guy's unbelievable. But he was given that chance to like actually playing those teams and playing those teams to actually find actually do you know what I'm not a fullback, I'm a centre, and I'm a bloody good one at that. And he's gone on to be a British line. So great example of why the, those teams are are, are so important. And last, but by no means least, we return to the incredible Johnny Wilkinson, another standout product from the North East. Johnny came and talked to us for our live pod at King's Home, and the whole episode, like all of those you've heard snippets from today, is worth downloading. Here is the great man talking about what relegation fights did for him, and how playing at the line is the only place where true reward can be found. One of the biggest achievements I think we ever had was twice surviving relegation. If there is nothing harder than playing at that end of the table where you are just trying to keep the team up and, and you're all trying to keep the team up and there's no prizes. No one's got, you know, sort of, I don't know, maybe they do now, but in my era there was no bonus in your contract for staying up. There might be one for winning Europe, but there's nothing. It's just literally, and you're playing for your friends, you're playing for livelihoods, you're playing for security, all those kind of things. And suddenly, you know, you, when you've got kicks in those kind of games or where you've got tackles on your line for those kind of games, it's just, and the build-up is so... And uh, so we had a lot of that, but I guess losses to me weren't the big deal, but, but not playing as well as I felt I could, horrible. And mostly that happened when we won as well. Mm. Often when we won, I was less happy with how I played than when we lost. Because when we lost at Newcastle, we were mostly backs to the wall and we were mostly just going for it. And in that mindset, you come up with stuff which is new to you. And when you come up with stuff that's new and you surprise yourself, it's a massively ecstatic kind of experience. And I think often we lost, but guys got pushed to the edge in order to try and find a way to win. And we trained hard like that. I played my best rugby at Newcastle, of anywhere. I played my actual best rugby at Newcastle because, you know, we were just so creative because we, 
someone sent me a photo of a team photo from about 2002 the other day. I looked at it and you'd be like, it looks like an academy squad. We're so young. Everyone, so young. And hardly anyone in there of any age or experience. And yet we just went out there and gave it everything and, and we really grew and, and learned. So losing I didn't have an issue with, but certainly those things where I felt like I could have done more were things I had to wrangle with and negotiate because that sort of fear was on the other side of it. So I had to come up with some kind of, I don't know, some kind of plan or, or some kind of response that kept the fear at bay, you know. Yeah, I know, but I'll go and work even harder and I'll do this, whatever, just don't, you know, just give me one more shot. Just give me one more shot. And I think it, those moments are, for me were the toughest. The biggest one, which led to perhaps one of the changes within me, was that I just couldn't, I couldn't handle feeling like I hadn't gone to the line. And we all have this in rugby. There's obviously you've got your defence and your attack and you can plan all you like, but nothing works until you go to the line. And if you go to the line, it all unfolds. But if you go to the line, you can't have what you, what you practised. You can't have what you practised and go to the line. You've got to let go of what you practice and trust that you'll find the solution by going to the line, which is a totally different mindset to playing deep from the line, getting what you practice and being able to know what you're going to get, but you have no impact. Mm. And the other thing is you never find anything else out about yourself. Mm. You've got to go to the line. And when I didn't go to the line, and it wasn't, I don't think hugely because of, it wasn't a, a physical thing for me ever. It was a mental thing was that I needed to be perfect. And how can you be perfect if you don't know? But back here I know, and I can make it perfect. But, it, God, it was the biggest compromise I ever made on myself was coming off the field and thinking, I didn't go. That's where, that's where genius speaks on the field. You watch people like Zidane. They, don't, they get right in the action, and they take whatever they're given, and they turn it into something. And, they just, and sometimes it doesn't work, but when they go to that line, something happens, and people go, oh, my gosh, I was here to witness that. But when you watch a team playing safe, there's something about the whole atmosphere. And for me, that's what we did at Newcastle was when we were back to the wall, we had to go to the line. We had to go further than the line because what we practiced and who we had probably wasn't enough. Um, but what hurt more than anything was just, and essentially that's what came for me to understand what it means to make the most of life and what it means to make the most of this moment has something to do with understanding what it means to go to the line. In rugby, it was a clear physical thing but when you're just sat here I mean where's the line here it's like well it's there are you at it and what it means is what we were talking about is that do I come with a script of what I've been practicing and just speak that out or do we meet each other fully and do we find out what we know do we find out new stuff that kind of makes you go oh that was interesting and find out what some team spirit between us rather than a load of individuals just getting their bit and I think it's, that's been a, a big one for me. That's the thing that hurt the most. And, and thankfully, my injury period gave me a chance to, to recognise that a bit, at least. Johnny Wilkinson, rounding off this special Rugby Inheritance podcast episode. We hope you've enjoyed it. All the episodes mentioned today are available to download alongside some incredible interviews from the likes of Paul O'Connell, Sarah Hunter, Luke Pearce, Sean de Villiers, Greg Laidlaw, Stuart Lancaster, and many, many others. If you haven't already add the podcast to your favourites. You won't regret it. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support 
of the Rugby Inheritance Podcast. The Rugby Inheritance Podcast is brought to you in association with George Davies Turf, giving you the greenest grass for every lawn, pitch or playing field you have. Find out more at www.georgedaviesturf.co.uk.